Howdy, kids, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. It is the Toddzilla X Pod. I am your friendly host, Todd. Friendly is, of course, relative. Anyway, thanks for clicking in today. Got another flashback episode for you. A reload, if you will. And you just did. This one, taken from episode number 79. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes for a number of reasons. And it's entitled uh, Stories, Hope, and The Propaganda Paradox. That was the original title anyway. It was recorded at the height of the COVID-19 lockdowns. May 9th of 2020. Now, the original episode... Uh, was a video prototype. It's the very first episode that I recorded video of. I didn't get the whole episode on video. Long story, boring story. I won't uh, bother with it. But the first segment is up on YouTube if you want to see the video and see what I looked like 40 pounds ago. (laughs) This was before I started the COVID weight loss, the running and everything else, probably actually just a couple of weeks before all of that started. And the first segment of this was about how people talk. We've all heard it. We probably have all said it at one point or another. People are just stupid. People always say something like that in some context or another. Yet, in this country, people believe in the religious concept of collective wisdom as though people, when they gather into a group, become smarter, which isn't the case. (laughs) That's what the first segment of this was about. Uh, And a little bit more that you're, uh, if you want to hear the whole audio episode, go back and listen to it. Once again, it's uh, episode number 79. Uh, It's about an hour and 15 minutes long. A lot's been cut out of this episode. And the video is back there. Now, once again, on my YouTube channel, which is Tonzilla X. Now, what you're about to hear here is incredibly important for this podcast moving forward. I know it's a couple of years old. Everything in this episode, or most of it, especially the early parts, talking about uh, the role that stories play, not only in people's lives, but in how they exploit evolutionary human nature to act as a propaganda Trojan horse. The delivery system is stories. I get into this a lot, but I got to tell you, the stuff that I get into here that you're about to hear in this episode, it doesn't even scratch the freaking surface. I didn't have a complete concept of what I was getting into here. This is a game changer. Now, I've got some more recent stuff that I think I'm going to put up on the YouTube channel. Uh, Exclusive just to the YouTube channel. I tried to record, I did record another episode prior to the original one, number 111. I recorded one a couple of weeks earlier than that and had some uh, technical problems. It felt really good, and I made the mistake of thinking that I should re-record it. I really, honestly, I should have just released the damn thing. It was pretty good. It's still pretty good. But I'm going to keep that material. I've got video of it, and I'm going to take that video, and I'm going to take a couple more clips and put that up on the YouTube channel, one of which gets into the role that storytelling plays in all of this. Eventually, this is going to be a central theme of this show, but not just yet. This episode also goes off into a discussion or a monologue, I guess, on the uh, difference between ideological and theological religions. I've said a million times on this show, I have an entire episode. One of the very first ones I did when I resurrected this podcast in 2018 was an episode on ideological religions, how political ideology is a religion. I get into that on this show in the context of stories, myths, mythology, how we explain the world. But what's the difference? How is it that I can give a bit of a pass to actual run-of-the-mill standard theological religion, but rail against the ideological variety? I had a problem with that. I got into that in this episode, and I came back the next day and recorded another piece before I uploaded, because there was a disconnect there. That's the last section of this, and it's long. It's uh, Well, the original was about 26 minutes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't uh, look at the exact time total on this one, but that's where this is going to go toward the end of it. And it's a good, I think it's a very good discussion on the role that religion, mythology, story, all of these things play, and some of the damage that's being done. There you go. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for clicking in. Most of what we think we know is simple belief. Second, third, tenth-hand information is inseminated into our adopted and personalized grand designs, these grand designs that just happen, happen to integrate perfectly 
with the little stories we all privately write in our own minds about our own lives. We all have stories about our lives. They're little biographies that we write. When these biographies aren't going how we imagined they would, how the expectations were that they would go, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well with us. Anxiety sets in, depression, all sorts of things, but that's because of the expectations of the stories that we are writing within our own minds. Do you even realize you do that? It's something each and every human being does. We are storytellers. We are such storytellers that we tell stories to ourselves without even realizing it. Narratives. What use are these uh, internal biographies? What use are they to anyone without a heroic ending for the protagonist? I'm going to tell you something. That whole chunk right there, be careful. Be really careful if you decide to swallow that little apple slice there because this is not something that's going to set you free. If you look at it that way and you think of it in the right way, there's a certain essential beauty to our bullshit. That bullshit, those fictitious narratives, are tethered to hope. The two things are inseparable. Beliefs and truth Mutually exclusive. However, belief and hope, those things are forever tied together in chains. The hope derived from belief allows us to function in the face of a reptilian, nihilistic reality. One that doesn't care if we live or die. A reality that actually ends in our own demise. Each and every one of us. That's hard for people to deal with. And we tell ourselves stories to get around to give ourselves a get-out-of-death-free card. Gives us hope that we'll go on after we die. We'll see our loved ones again. It goes far, far, far beyond religion. Beyond life after death, though. And human beings with an infantile and egocentric sense of awareness belief in something, bullshit or not. Belief in something is as basic a need as the air you're breathing right now. And if you don't have that, well, atheists are a hell of a lot more miserable and angry than believers. For a reason. Now, of course, there's more to this. Uh, the truth, ha-ha-ha, uh, is that uh, the world beyond our tips of our noses, as I said earlier, our own isolated experience, it's unimaginably complex, man. It's utterly incomprehensible to any shaved ape. Yes, even you. Humility will not, however, suit our center of the universe ego. Just won't. Ape needs to feel a part of the enlightened group. The good guys. And most importantly, need to feel personally, personally and individually righteous. They are the hero. They are the good guy. Of course, they're writing this story. They're writing this, this novel of their lives in their heads. Of course, they need to cast themselves as the good guy as the hero. Therefore, we need uh, the group for fellowship. Our well-intended self-importance lures us into something bigger than ourselves. Collective herd beliefs can be manipulated. They can be weaponized en masse. And they are. Rather than uh, personal psychological wellness tools, uh, these beliefs easily become fanatical tribal religions. Something for a believing mob to inflict upon the blasphemous other. Behold, ah, the fundamentals of propaganda and disinformation, proselytes praying to be seen on every virtual street corner everywhere. Justice, I need justice, freedom, 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 tyranny. Preaching the scripture, man. Preaching the good word everywhere on the virtual street corner that is social media. And also behold, why it's so easy to sell propaganda disinformation, to sell bullshit to the people. Because the people universally demand it. They do. In an instantaneously and globally connected world, though, that sort of psychological weaponization to continue the mythology theme is Armageddon. More convinced of it every single week that the devil unleashed upon the earth 
is us. Evolution does not wait for permission, and neither does extinction. We don't figure this out. Well, it's an unpopular observation that doctrinal belief and truth are mutually exclusive. I fully understand that. Finding truth, finding the truth, is an eternal process of seeking and exploration, not confirmation. Seeking and exploration versus convenient confirmation. When you say you believe something, you're declaring that you have discovered the truth. You found the answers to a mystery. When preached on the street corner, digital or organic, doesn't matter which street corner, they almost always emanate from someone who wants something from you. Either money titles, publicity, status, votes, power, control, ego-fueling recognition perhaps, maybe some validation of their righteous virtue or support for one special interest cause or another. People inflicting their beliefs upon you, trying to convince you of them, want something from you. This is the same as Jim and Tammy Faye did. Fuck the preachers. We need seekers. We need millions of them. People seeking answers rather than proclaiming that they've already found them. I have had nothing to do but think these past few weeks about our bloody history, about the mistakes we've made. What unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? Stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. I've been waiting to use that clip since I saw this in the season finale of Game of Thrones last year. Stories. We are a storytelling species. Many people believe that the rise of civilization itself was due to the unique human ability to engage in creative, abstract thought. The creation of language. An abstract endeavor. We're the only ones that can really talk. Maybe you think dolphins and whales, fine, whatever, great. Run with that idea, write a book about it, I'll read it. But as far as we know for sure, human beings are the only ones who can really, really communicate with language. And a lot of people think that ability to come up with abstract ideas, symbolism, led to civilization along with uh, the rise of mythology and fiction. A collectively shared common fiction. Cohesive stories allow groups to cooperate. Gives them a common bond. Cooperate with each other. And uh, as the mythologies evolve, move from bands to tribes to complex societies and forge cooperation with other groups within the society. You have a common foundation, a common belief, a common narrative, a common story. That allows... Each and every one of these groups, these these different tribes within the collective society, it allows each and every one of them to thrive within it. And it also allows the external tribes to thrive as well, freed from the threat of decimation by the neighbor. There's a common threat, a common bond, an agreed set of standards by which to live on. It's the American myth. Every nation has their myth. The American myth, you know, all men are created equal, that kind of stuff. Republicanism as opposed to direct democracy. That's what it is. Fiction is ancient. It's prehistoric. As I said before, we are storytellers. We create these stories to make sense of what we cannot possibly understand. We also write them for meaning. Find our place inside the sea of chaos to ease one point of anxiety that each and every one of us, actually, I would say, each and every species that we know of, has always shared. The one anxiety that we share with every living being on this planet is our own mortality. 
We don't want to die. We have a survival instinct, most of us. We don't want to die. In fact, we are quite anxious about the fact that we will one day. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, each of us know we're going to die one day, and that bugs the shit out of us. We're the only species that's conscious of that anxiety and what it means. That causes problems, psychological problems, to an infantile ego that doesn't know its place, hasn't figured out its purpose. Only awareness, only consciousness. That's it. That's all we have. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with it? What does it mean? It's what we start asking. Well, we, we can't possibly answer that. We're like cavemen trying to explain a thunderstorm when it comes to stuff like that, so we create stories. Hey, Thor, he's throwing the lightning bolts from heaven. Yay, God. That's what we do with these other existential questions. That's what we do with death. We neuter it by saying we live on. We deal with the grief by telling ourselves that after we die, if we're good, we'll go to heaven and we will see grandma, mom, dad, Fido. There's no end. That's what we tell ourselves. That's a story. One of the things that we tell ourselves so we don't drive ourselves nuts. I think it frees us to go about the business of our lives without being a basket case. But it goes beyond just death, man. Society binds us together, gives us a common sort of foundation. It puts us on the same team. At least on a larger scale. There are teams within it, but if the, if the narrative and the story and the myth is strong enough, the subgroups can exist within it beneath a common flag. The symbol of the myth, the symbol of the national grand design, is the flag. Got a bunch of them behind me here. We are storytellers. And I'll tell you, when it comes to religion, you better be careful killing the gods. Another deity, another rendition of some future utopian paradise other than heaven. Some concoction of that's always going to fill the void. At least the Bible. The Christian Bible. At least that taught or tried to teach anyway. Collective flawed humanity. It gave us an externalized idea of our own duality. The good and evil that potentially resides within each of us if we're not careful. Yes, it externalized it with God and the devil and all that. But it gave us that sense. It gave its followers that sense that they were flawed, that they were broken, they they were not perfect, that they themselves were not God. Because once you're God, what's the limit to your self-righteousness? If you yourself are on your way to becoming God, or maybe you think you already are God, a collective, I don't know, human God, (laughs) If that's you, well, you can do no wrong. What's the limit to your righteousness at that point? I've had a a history with religion. I had my own once upon a time, and I lost it. And I, I railed against institutional corporate religion for a number of years. I've made peace with it, at least. I, I think I get it really well. I can appreciate it. I can appreciate where the need comes from now, because since I've lost mine, <laughs> I'm starting to understand what I lost. So, I will say this. I'll implore you. And even if you are an atheist, if you're a non-believer, if you think that and all those people are beneath you because they believe these silly things, and if those people are not swinging their religion around like a big phallus, slapping you in the face with it, leave them alone. Let them have their religion. Let them have their story because, brother, I'll bet you, I'll bet you, I sit you down on the couch You have an honest conversation with me for 20 minutes, I'll find yours. You've got your story, too. Each and every one of us has it. And just because somebody believes in Jesus and believes that they're going to see Grandma after they die, just so they can go on, just so they can move forward with their lives without being in anguish, without being in confusion, without being in a state of utter and complete bewilderment, 
and you think you're above it, if you try to take that away from them, if they're not swinging that phallus in your face, it's an act of cruelty. If you could take that away from someone who's harming no one, who's not trying to recruit you, not trying to condemn you as a blasphemer because you don't believe the same myth they do, if these people are not doing that, and yet you still presume to believe that you're in a holy and righteous and truthful place, so attached to reason, that you'd presume to take that away from them if you could. It's an act of cruelty. You're a c***t. I'm kind of talking to myself five, six years ago here. If that's you, stop that. Leave people the fuck alone. Because, I, again, I'm going to say it again. I guarantee it. I'll find yours. Let's sit on the couch. I'll find it. I'll dig it out of you. Dig that sliver out of your brain. And I'll show it to you. Here it is. <laughs> you're no better than them. And if you're one of these folks who preaches the, the good and holy progressive doctrine and religion, it's effortless. Your utopia is their heaven. Your God is the God of external cosmic justice and equality. External justice, cosmic justice, this automatic standard, this, this tangible thing that apparently you think floats through, the, through outer space, the justice comet, as much of an imaginary deity as Yahweh. Be careful. There's a disconnect because politics, the ideological kind of religions, offer the same things. They give you answers. They explain the world beyond your, your uh, personal first-hand experience, things you cannot possibly understand because you cannot see them for yourselves. So you can get inside of this ideological bubble for explanations, for senses of purpose. Do you think utopia is not <laughs> a, like an ultimate destination? You want to get to heaven? You want to get to Oz? It fits the same purpose. It really does. And there is a disconnect there. I noticed this. I, I thought about it last night when I finished recording this because both of these things are true, both with the religious and the political aspects of religion. The religious mind, as Jacques Ellul put it, they do serve a purpose. So, how do I differentiate between the two? How can I be so judgmental about politics, about the political religions and theologies, yet, by the same token, be forgiving of the religious kind, as long as they're not swinging the, the, the doctrinal phallus in your face, smacking in the cheek with it, trying to save you. Then all bets are off. I don't know that I emphasized that enough in the episode or the part of this episode that I recorded last night, but that's the difference. As long as no one is trying to recruit you, leave them alone. As long as they're not trying to force their religion upon you, as long as they're not trying to get Sky Daddy and the zombie messiah all up in you, what does it matter to you what they believe and how they get through their day? That's my point, but there is a disconnect here. And again, ideology serves almost the same purpose as religion. It offers this framework. It provides a personal, both personal and a herd sense of righteousness. The same as religion, that you're on the side of good. It's the imagined uh, ordering of what is essentially an abstract fairy tale of a world. A political mythology that allows the followers to think their adopted, inseminated beliefs have solved the mystery, just like religion. It lets the faithful congregationalists believe that they have found God's divine plan. It is, to keep the theme of this podcast intact, it is a story, an internal narrative, an internal fiction, a grand design explaining the natural universe with simplistic scripture. And like most other religious fanatics, when they've convinced themselves that they've found God and are on his team, that the deity works through him personally, the self-righteousness coming with that narcissistic delusion provides a sense of manipulated and manipulable purpose. 
It can be guided. The herd, the flock can be tended and poked and prodded in a certain direction. Becomes a quest to find their way to heaven, utopia, a crusade in the name of God. Be it Sky Daddy, St. Bernie, the Virgin AOC, I doubt that, or the Derp Messiah himself, Mr. Trump. You're serving God. You're on the side of righteousness against evil. Again, this is Jacques Ellul in The Religious Mind. I have an episode. I meant to go back and actually get the episode number, but it's back there. It's labeled The Religious Mind. It's probably in August of last year. It's worth listening to. Uh, I did uh, take a lot of stuff directly from his book, Propaganda, and added some things to it. But that is The Religious Mind. And The Religious Mind, Propaganda, Disinformation, <laughs> those things go hand in hand. The minister at the church is the same as the propagandist on the television. Same general idea. The Mormons knocking at the door are the same ones, same people who are trying to lure you into the ideological church. And it's tempting, as I said, to classify political theology with the religious kind. Put them all together. That they're all the same. They're not all quite the same. They're related, but they're not identical. Again, the answers for the blind, bewildered herd, a sense of purpose and hope, single-sized self-righteousness that feeds off the collective herd, casting yourself as the political hero in your internal life novel, getting sucked into the addictive mob mentality of congregational fellowship. These things are similar. Proselytes who go out crusading to either save or, if they can't save, conquer the savages who worship a false god. These are the similarities, and it's that last part that I think makes the distinction. The word crusaders, I think, works. I don't think I've used that word enough. Let's call activists, political activists, and ideological fanatics by their proper name, crusaders. In the classic sense of the term, the only difference is they're not quite putting people on stakes and burning them because the barbarians worshiping an improper deity. That's where this comparison breaks down, man. Both theological and ideological tyrants dream of their righteous theocratic utopias. Religious tyrants are on their way to heaven. Political totalitarians are marching toward utopia. These are different manifestations of abstract ideas that you could classify as paradise, heaven. The ultimate goal, heaven on earth. And as I thought about this, this is where it really, I think, took hold, the difference and the distinction. The key difference is that the religious zealot has an option of limiting the practice of his particular mythology to himself. His path can be solo. In fact, his scripture, at least the words of his uh, zombie messiah, encourage the solo journey. It's typically the herd corruption induced by organized zealotry that sends the uh, faithful out to crusade and conquer barbarian savages. They do it in a group. You don't see singular crusaders out there, do you? No, you've got a mob, you've got a group, you've got a herd of crusaders who are out to conquer the infidels. These folks want to legislate the fairy tale into compulsive practice and national law a theocracy, to erect the Ten Commandments in governmental buildings. And this, of course, will spawn the influential critter like William Jennings Bryan, Mike Pence, Jerry Falwell, grifters like Jim Baker. Had a stroke this week. I'll miss him. How about you? And countless, countless others. This is swinging the religious phallus in the collective face. In this regard, religious and ideological crusades are no different to me. A self-righteous intention to inflict your abstract belief on the non-believer. This is the definition of a tyrant. Textbook. Religious fanatics have the option of having a personal relationship with their God. Admittance into the uh, afterlife's Oz is granted on an individual basis. You don't need, it's not a requirement to convert the country to get your 72 virgins. Not required to bring everyone under 
<laughs> the religious umbrella or the uh, doctrinal umbrella in order to get your heavenly reward. All you have to do is follow the rules yourself as an individual, and you can still get into heaven, supposedly. Now, political zealots, on the other hand, do not have that option, do they? To manifest utopia, lands must be conquered. Peoples must be converted or conquered. If the promised land cannot be saved, the only option the ideological fanatic has is revolutionary force. Are you ready for the revolution, are you? Take them at their word when they use that kind of language. They mean it. This is the crusade. There's no such thing as a personal relationship with politics. Politics is the art of recruiting, inspiring, and guiding the herd toward a desired response and a desired outcome. What good are single men enjoying their personal relationship with the word of Marx or Bernie or the Gospels of St. Jefferson if they don't join the herd? If they don't vote, or failing that, if they don't take to the streets and join the revolution, what use are they? They may as well kill themselves. They're useless to the political Borg. In fact, you know what? They're less than useless. Their nonconformity is an impediment to any future utopian tyranny of enforced unanimity. They will have to be dealt with eventually. So, they're be below the uh, status of useless. They're problematic. This is exactly why I can make peace with the theologically faithful and refuse at the same time to abide the ideological zealot. A person can, in practice, refrain from waving the big of belief in your face and still get to his heavenly oasis in the sky. The political zealot can't. At some point, that zealotry must become tyrannical authoritarian. Unanimous conformity is impossible. He'll want to enforce it. Eventually, he'll want his own commandments hanging from the state house walls. There's a quote I like to use. The only enemy is authoritarianism, extremism, radicalism of any kind, any group. I don't care if they're conservative, liberal, religious. I don't care what it is. In a country of 320 million people, if you're presuming to demand conformity to your belief system, you are the problem. If you're going to demand that 320 million people conform and practice your cult's rituals and belief systems, you, sorry to say, are a tyrant. There's no other way to put it. This is the bane of my existence. This is why I chose propaganda, disinformation, social media, the herd mentality, the group mind. Because this, in this day and age with global connectivity, having a broadcast unit in your pocket to be pinged or to ping others at will, whenever you choose, is dividing us into these cults. These political and ideological cults. And this is turning this country steadily into a version of the Middle East, where you've got extremists, religious extremists. I don't care if they're political, they're religious. Okay? Religious extremists on both ends of the spectrum getting ready to engage in a holy war for the promised land. That's pretty much the point of this podcast. I'm trying to get through your heads. How propaganda, disinformation uses these ideas, this need for belief and purpose. To feel righteous, to be the star of your own narrative, your own internal story. The novel you constantly write and update and read every single day in your mind. How all of that combines 
as a Trojan horse to expose the hole in your psychological firewall. And mine. <laughs> Look, I appreciate the comfort, the illusion of personal righteousness, the burning sense of existential purpose, the warm uh, evolutionary glow of the herd, and the fellowship. I experienced it all. I have And I've lost it all. I have. I know what these things mean and the emptiness their absence leaves. I do. But I also know where that intoxicated sense of arrogant moral certitude leads. It is, again, let me repeat it, the gateway to propaganda and disinformation. This is Heights Elephant's heroin. And you will get hooked on it before you know it. You'll be in a constant and perpetual state of morally certain intoxication. Where does that go? When you've got groups and hordes gathering into these mutually exclusive and combative cults, equally balanced, somebody has got to win. Somebody's got to fight. And when you get to that point... When you fight, there's eventually going to be a winner. And the other half of the country, the ones who lost, are going to have to be suppressed. What do we call that? When one group in the country has to suppress and oppress the beliefs of the other half of the country, what do we call it? Do I need to say it again? It starts with a T. But to designate yourself and your group as the chosen ones crusading for God against the forces of evil, that's what this becomes. Is there anything off the table? Anything. Anything at all. Out of bounds. When you're fighting with God's army against Satan's. Goes against reason to believe that you're going to play by rules when you're fighting against your perceived Hitler, your religion's mortal enemy. Your ideologies, Hitler. (laughs) And what if there's no good choice here? I was thinking about this earlier. I was writing this stuff up, trying to sort it out. Think it back to Spain. Uh, Probably the 30s, I guess, right? There was a civil war in Spain between the fascists. The fascists were trying to take over Spain against the communists. Communists and the fascists were fighting each other in Spain. George Orwell, love the man, appreciate the man. Respect the man, because he was a raging socialist. Early 30s, mid-30s, he was, oh boy, was he left. And he went to fight fascism in Spain. And he joined a regiment, I guess, of some sort of, um, I don't know, socialist, communist, whatever. They were going to get rid of, what, Franco? Is that who it was? I think so. And then he started to see how bad, how bad the, uh, uh, the side he was fighting on really was. He was shot in the throat, I think. I think he was deemed a traitor by somebody in the Communist Party. And I think he was actually shot by the side I think he was fighting for. I don't know. I need to go read homage to uh, Catalonia again. I can't remember the details of it. But either way, he went to fight the fascists in Spain. And what came out wound up coming out of Spain, realizing that neither one of these extremist alternatives (laughs) were going to work. You suck and you suck too. Uh-uh. He came out and wrote Animal Farm after that. He wrote 1984 after all of this. If you notice, Animal Farm was, well, you don't need to notice it. It's a historical fact. It was banned in the Soviet Union. It was banned in all the Eastern Bloc countries for a long time. It wound up circulating on the underground. In fact, I think he wrote a, an introduction to the edition of the book that wound up being passed around subversively through those Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, he's talking directly. Those characters, there's a Stalin in there, there's a Trotsky. And this comes from a guy who was a passionate socialist in the 1930s. 1984 is not ideologically specific. I know you want to think it is. If you're a socialist, if you're a leftist, you're a far lefty, you're going to see Donald Trump when you read 1984, and you're going to, you're going to see everything about conservatives when you read 1984. But the problem is, is that the conservatives are seeing you guys when they read it. And here's the thing. Orwell wrote it because you're both right. 
He wrote it in that context. He wrote it in uh, the context of a ideologically neutral, authoritarian, tyrant. Anybody who's trying to uh, compel society into unanimity. Much of this, a lot of this, a ton of this came out of his work, his experience, I should say, in Spain, and then working in the propaganda, working for the BBC. He was a propagandist during World War II, working against the Axis, working for the BBC. Lippmann had the same. People who work as propagandists, when they get an inside look at this, come out with some incredible insights. They understand how it works because they've produced it and manufactured it and used it. That's how he got Newspeak and all this other stuff for 1984. Orwell knew what he was talking about. He saw both sides of it. He saw the blackness of both sides. And to bring it back home, that's where we're headed. This bilateral reactionary extremism of both sides is going to leave us eventually with no good choice. The only alternative, the only option, the only future we are going to have is to fight. And when we start to fight, somebody's got to win. What happens to the losers? What is your plan to subdue the opposition on the day of your glorious victory? I've asked that question so many times, I can't fucking count them anymore, and I have never in my life gotten an answer. What you going to do, Bernie bros? What you going to do, Antifa, on the day you win? What you going to do about the Proud Boys? What you going to do about those conservative Trump voters who hate you? Even if you've won the war, how are you going to subdue them? And I'll ask the same question. When the battle starts, Trump bots, what are you going to do about AOC's crowd? What are you going to do about the Bernie bros and Antifa? How are you going to deal with them? Do you have a plan? Of course you don't have a plan. You know, 90% of you have never thought about it. <laughs> 90, that's low. 2% of you probably have. And it's like one of those lightning quick flashes of thought. I don't want to think about it. I'll worry about that later. Probably in and out of your head in a split second, right? <sighs> this is a paradox. I'm going to wrap this segment up with this because it is a bit of a paradox. Take it back to the belief hope thing. People need it. People need to believe in something. There has to be something you're going towards. This is all about the narrative, the stories that I've talked about, also mythology, religion, tribalism. Dostoevsky, the struggle thing that I've talked about, how people need to be working toward something, a sense of purpose, a sense of hope for achieving something, reaching something in the future. There is a struggle <laughs> that, re- that human beings require. And these wildly confused human psyches are unable to translate their own internal psychological language as well. Because half the time, most of the time, almost all of the time, we don't think about the thoughts we're having. And once we do start to think about them, they are confused. It's hard to track them. A lot of this stuff is just reflexive. And when it's reflexive, it can be manipulated. Something else for you to think about as if I haven't given you enough today. The point isn't reaching heaven or achieving utopia. All right? It's the feeling that one day we will. It's the journey, the hopeful, purpose-filled journey that one day we will arrive. It's not the destination. It's the journey. It's the journey, not the destination. Life's a journey, not a destination. I think that's Aerosmith. That's the thing that powers us. That's the thing that fuels us. And religion and political ideologies, they are both things that exploit that. And the engine for the exploitation is propaganda. This isn't hard to understand, man. The human core is fueled by hope. And hope breeds enthusiasm. Enthusiasm triggers purpose. Purpose leads to action. Purposeful action spawns a sense of utility. That's one of the pillars of happiness is feeling a sense of utility, of usefulness, and existential fulfillment, righteousness. Being a good person. Without that fundamental sense of hope, real or imagined, again, it doesn't matter. Nothing else follows. We suffocate and die even if we continue living. 
This is a paradox. I don't know what to do with this. Jacques Ellul put forth in his book Propaganda that this was inevitable. The propaganda was inevitable. Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan said that free societies are destined to civil war. Simply because of human nature. Narcissistic wants, desires, even needs. These conflicting stories, these conflicting tribal narratives. When people cordon themselves off and and fence themselves off into a group, what do you do about the group over here that wants the same thing you do? I am not a Thomas Hobbes expert. I haven't uh, read a lot of dissertations on Leviathan. (laughs) I do know enough about it, though, to say that his premise is that uh, uh, societies, super societies, are destined destined to be ruled by authoritarians if they're to remain peaceful. Because if they're not, if they're not, if the people are too free, if the democracy is too direct, it'll descend into chaos, civil war, violence, bloodshed. And, uh, well, then you got a choice if you're the government, right? Is there a difference between the authoritarianism before the chaos or the authoritarianism that's going to come after the crackdown to restore peace and order? These are heady, deep, uncomfortable questions. Nobody's asking you these things. Nobody's telling you these things. Nobody is pointing them out. I don't know why. I have ideas. And I think one of those reasons is because, you know what, they don't sell. People don't want to hear this. They want a message of sausage party hope. They want to hear how it's going to be okay. They're children demanding to be comforted, demanding to be protected from the boogeyman lurking under the bed. But that doesn't change anything. An eagerness to avoid the truth doesn't change the truth. Shoving your head in the sand during a hurricane doesn't stop the flood. Just like everybody says, hey, I'm in the no bullshit zone and I'm no spinning and everybody thinks of that and none of them are doing anything or saying what their clack is going to applaud. Right. That's not gutsy. Gutsy is to tell your adoring fans what they don't want to hear because it's the truth. Right. Well, that's what makes you so singular and remarkable. Finally, we got to something. It's a little different with political comedians because they stay within whatever the liberal doctrine is. They're not going to upset their audience about that. It's episode number 79. That's what it was taken from. Recorded on May the 9th of 2020. Right at the height of all the COVID restrictions and lockdowns and stuff in the original episode. Go back and listen to it, of course. I had just left the house for the first time. I put my mask on and went out and had to find some vape stuff. And it was talking about how weird that was. I did not like that mask, boy. I wore it. I did. I did my I did my due diligence or whatever you want to call it. I, I wore that thing wherever I had to, but I hated it. Glasses fogging up. Didn't know how to get rid of that. Hope you like these uh, these sort of retrospectives. I don't know what to call them. I, I, I call the last one a reload. Kind of makes sense because I'm re-uploading it. Uh, but I think I'm going to do a lot of these. Because as I said in the other episode, uh, I've been pretty dormant for a year and a half. I think I have lost a lot of listeners. Well, I know I have, uh, based on my stats anyway. But, you know, it's been a year and a half, three, four episodes now, I guess, since uh, January or February of 2021. No, uh, early the first week of March. Four or five episodes, I guess, since then. So, yeah, I've lost a lot of people. So the people who are here, I might have some people coming back when they figure out I've started recording again. That's great. I'll be be thrilled about it. But I think a lot of the people that I'm going to find now as the podcast continues forth are going to be new listeners. 111 episodes back there. A lot of them are well over an hour. Uh, I want to do this as sort of a service. It'll give you something. It'll just kind of give you the big, the big chunks, the important chunks to maybe, you know, uh, whet your appetite to go back and maybe find some of these other episodes if you need to, or if you just want to, you know, wait for these things and, and and listen to them as they come across. I think it's a great way to do it. 
This one today, the storytelling thing with the propaganda, the tie-in with storytelling and propaganda, it's huge. I can't say that enough. It's huge. And as it comes, uh, as the propaganda stuff goes, I had a whole series back in August of 2019. I may do something. With, I never finished that. I think I did about a third of it. I, everything that I wanted to do with that book and with that, that sort of um, uh, almost a thesis on propaganda. I don't know if that's the right word, but I, I was really delving into this really deep. And I had a lot more I wanted to do. And I had that episode pulled and it just completely, it just fucked my mind. And I went off in another direction, and I, I kept intending to get back to it through the rest of 2019, 2020. I never did. Believe it or not, there is two-thirds more, three times as much as I've already done. If you go back and look at those episodes, and you go back and listen to those episodes, and imagine that times three, at least times two. So I think I want to get back to that, because the, the propaganda material... <laughs> It's hard to explain. I, I I want to keep some mystery here. I want to kind of, kind of I don't want to give the plot line away. The, the propaganda material is still hugely important. You have to understand it. Talk about metacognition a time or two. Understanding how you think. I think I mentioned it in this episode. You have to understand how you think. And you have to understand how these psychological and cognitive mechanisms, how they function and how they operate in each and every one of us, me included. But also, how those things are exploited. Then you can detect. You can start to try to detect these things happening. That's the only hope we have. It's not guaranteed to work. My hope level is nil. Reminds me of what I said about Joe Biden. Like <laughs> when I was actually supporting him. Uh, uh, yeah. I'll dig that up someday. But I said that, you know, when Biden was playing the moderate, in 2020, I was like, hey, you know what? He may not bring this country together. He may, he may fail, but he's the only one who can. This is the same thing. This probably isn't going to work. Knowing human nature, knowing how people are, how stubborn we are, how combative we are, it's probably isn't going to work, but it's the only thing that can. Is understanding propaganda, understanding how to, how it, how your mind is hacked. Propaganda, advertising all of it, are stories. Propaganda is a political narrative. What's a narrative? It's a story. Full stop. That's what we do. We tell stories. Most of us, I promise you, most of us have no idea, absolutely zero idea, how big of a role stories play in our lives. And I forgot where my button is. There it is. There you go. So I'm going to be bringing a lot of this stuff back. I still have a lot of new material too. Don't worry. Don't you worry about that. But if I get, if I hit my method, I hit my flow, I'm going to I'm going to flood you with stuff. Now, there you go. Toddzilla X. That's me pretty much everywhere. Facebook uh, yeah, at ETCPod on Twitter. You can also use the Tonzilla X handle to find my videos on YouTube. Going to have a lot more of those coming. Maybe really, really soon. I've got some uh, you, uh, YouTube exclusive stuff from this episode that I recorded back at the end of July and never recorded or never uh, uploaded. I'm going to put some of that up on YouTube real quick. Uh, let's see. YouTube, Substack, Tonzilla X over there. Subscribe to the newsletter. That way you don't miss anything. I don't flood you. I don't spam you too much. Probably too little, if anything. <laughs> Go sign up for that. And uh, yeah, I can't think of anything else. My voice doesn't feel that hot tonight, so I'm just going to shut up and say thank you ever so kindly for clicking in. Till next time, so long.